If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 32. It will be the text in which we look at this morning. This is a, a passage that um, <clears throat> comes in the middle of the life of Jacob. If you uh, are unfamiliar with the life of Jacob, uh, this is what you can find out, is that Jacob uh, is one of those characters in the Bible who does nothing right. There are many... Uh, Stories and saints uh, throughout the Old Testament who God has used who have moments of faithfulness and faithlessness. Uh, but Jacob is a character who does nothing faithful. And I think that's an inviting idea to begin with because it means whatever your week was or wherever you are in life, uh, you can identify with this man and it frees you up to be who you are, to know this story and to enter in. So this is Genesis chapter 32, a critical moment in his life. The life of Jacob says this, beginning at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip of the socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word. Let me ask you a question just to begin with, um, and it's going to sound... Um, really simple, but do you want to know God? And that might even seem like a silly question to ask in a church like this, with a congregation like this, but what this text will ask you is, do you really want to know God? Because for many of us, that seems so obvious, yet what this text will do is it will ask you this question, do you want to know God? If your immediate answer is yes, it will ask you to rephrase that question with this, uh, this one. Do you want to limp? Do you want to be wounded? Do you want to wrestle? If your immediate answer to that question is no, I do not want to know God, it will re-ask you this question in this context. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to taste life? Do you want to taste what you were meant to be made for in this world? See, do you want to know God is a much more complicated It's a much more profound question than we might even consider asking ourselves. And so let's ask this question to ourselves through four ideas. Do you want to know God? If you want to know God, you must have a new story. And that story can be found through four ideas. You have to get alone. You have to wrestle. You have to make a demand. And you must answer a question. If you want to know God and you want a new story... You must get alone. You must wrestle. 
you must make a demand and you must answer a question. First, you must get alone. Look what it says in verse 22. The same night he rose and took his wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And then verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. See, this is the dark night of Jacob's soul where everything comes together and he is forced to ask and think about what things in a whole new light because what's going to happen to him is he thinks tomorrow is the climax of his life where he's going to be reunited with his brother Esau who he had wronged, who he had stolen everything from. And what happens is what uh, Jacob believes that Esau is on his way to kill him, to get revenge, to take everything back that he had taken from him to begin with. And so hedging his bets, he sends half his family to the east, the other half of the family to the west. And in a sort of a plea to get his brother to have mercy upon him, he sends his possessions across the river to him and hoping that that will be a, a peace offering between the two of them. And so Jacob, without his family, without his possessions, without anything else, he is left alone. You see, this man Jacob, who is the son of Isaac and the son of Abraham, is left in a moment with his own regrets, his own story, possibly his own death facing tomorrow morning, and it's the first time he's been alone. And it's a profound moment. It's a changing moment for him because in his loneliness, in the moment of his regrets at the torrent of this river, he is forced to find something that he's never found before alone. You see, even though he's the grandson of Abraham, Jacob had never found faith. See, the faith of his father, the faith of his grandfather, it had never been his. It had been something he'd been around, something he'd been exposed to, but it had never been his. John Owen talks about this in his uh, Communion with Christ novel. He says, it is so possible for us to be around, to know of Christ, to be exposed to Christ, and to not know Christ. And the reality of the matter is that you may know lots and lots about God, but not know God himself. But the only path to know him is that you must get alone. And never before have we ever lived in a culture where it was so difficult to be alone. Listen to this. This is F.P. Horton, written in 1932. 1932. There is, in this age, very little understanding of the true nature of silence in its right use. The world gets steadily noisier and more distracting, and people throw themselves in the noise and enjoy it, and they add to it. So people become incapable of sustained attention to either thought or prayer. So we find living with the wireless perpetually turned on, not because they want to listen to it, for it often impedes conversation. Sounds like a society of cell phones. This is 1932, but merely they cannot bear to enjoy quiet, even for a moment. All this makes for shallowness of soul and weakness of spiritual apprehension. Christianity comes to mean nothing because the faculties by which God is known have been weird and buzzed and shouted out of existence. How difficult it is to be alone, even today. You know, Louis C.K., the the comedian, says, we so fear the idea of being alone, we're willing to risk everyone's lives and put them all in danger because by looking at our cell phones when we drive because the fear of driving and having to be alone with our own thoughts is more terrifying than the idea of killing everyone else. And we've created strategies. We've created lives where it's, it's so easy and to succeed at not ever being alone. Those of us who have knowledge, who know a lot, 
Why would I ever need to be alone with the reality of my soul when I can explain everything away? Some of us have have gotten away from loneliness by being so incredibly cynical. We don't take anything seriously. We laugh at everything. Everything's a joke. Everything's funny. Nothing's about us. We We can spin everything off, and we never, ever, ever have to look in the mirror at our own story. Some of us are just busy that we have the most time-consuming jobs and all we can do at the end of the day is come home and decompress. Yet a life of decompression never actually even decompresses, even on a vacation, because even the distraction and the noise and the busyness of life there keeps us from ever having to be alone. The most difficult way to be alone ever is if your life is consumed, though, with service and morality. Because who's ever going to ask you about your life? Who's ever going to ask you and press you to be alone in the midst of your service and your admirable living? You see, all of those are ways for us never ever to have to sit at the torrent of the river with our regrets and begin to say, who am I? What do I, do I really want to know God? Who do I really want to be? See, you will never ever get to the story. You will never answer the question the way this text wants you to answer the question. Do you want to know God? You will never ask or answer that the right way unless you get alone. But secondly, to answer the question the right way, you must answer it through wrestling. See, it's fascinating that wrestling is now the climax of Jacob's life because his whole life he had been wrestling. He'd wrestled with his older brother for the birthright. He'd wrestled with his father for his own affection and his admiration. He'd wrestled with his uncle for his daughters. He'd wrestled with everyone for possession, always getting the upper hand. And here he is, caught at the torrent of the river, about to have the wrestling match of his life. Author Frederick Beatner narrates the the moment like this from a first-person recount. I'll quote him at some length. He says, Out of the dark, someone leaped at me with such force that it knocked me onto my back. It was a man. I could not see his face. His naked shoulder was pressed so hard against my jaw, I thought it would break it. His flesh was chilled and as wet as the river. He was the god of the river. I got my elbow into the pit of his throat and forced him off. I threw it, threw him over onto his back. His breath was hot in my face as I straddled him. My breath came in grasps. Quick, quick as a serpent, he twisted loose, and I was caught between his thighs. The grip was so tight I could not move. He had both his hands pressed to my cheek. He was pushing my face into the mud, grunting with the effort. Then he got me on my belly with his knee in the small of my back. He was tugging my head up toward him. He was breaking my neck. He was not the god of the river. He was Esau. Just as my neck was about to snap, I buttered my head up toward the last of my strength and caught him square. For an instant, his grip loosened and I was free. Over and over, we rolled together into the reeds at the water's edge. We struggled in each other's arms. He was on top. Then I was on top. I knew these were not the arms of Esau. It was not Esau. I did not know who it was. I did not know who I was. I knew only my terror and that it was the darkest death. I knew only that what the stranger wanted was my life. Have you ever wrestled? Have you ever really wrestled in life? Or do you, as Tolstoy puts it, sit on the bed of distraction, never having to wrestle and to deal with the moments of your own soul? See, if you ever get to the point where you must evaluate your life and you want to think about change, it will only change coming through wrestling. But often we don't know what we're wrestling with, just like Jacob in this moment. 
Maybe it's the God of the river. Maybe it's Esau. You see, for Jacob in this moment, he thought tomorrow was the climax of his life. He thought, I'm going to meet the person who I've wronged for 20 years, and tomorrow all will be made right. But this man is coming in the smart of the moment. This is the climax of your life. See, if you want to deal with issues in your life and you want to deal with your own story and you want to deal with how you properly answer questions in life, you have to go to the source and the real issue. Lest you deal with just the circumstances in your life, leave them, find new circumstances and find the weight of lies chasing you from circumstance to circumstance, repainting your story in just the same slight but a different shade. See, your story will not be retold. It will not be reshaped unless you begin to wrestle. See, this God who wants to remake your life, he will not come into your life and just pat you on the back and shake your hand and ask, how might I improve your present circumstances? He will come and knock off all your modern approach to, to sensibility of spirituality. See, this is not about getting inner calm. It's not about finding even just peacefulness. This is about a wrestling match. It's about finding new life. It's about finding and dealing with the story of your past. Dealing with your regrets. See, have you ever sat down and thought about what you're really angry at? Have you ever sat and wondered what you really longed for in life? Is it really those possessions? Is it really this person? Or do you long to be loved? Are you really mad this person's not let down? Are you mad that everything's not going your way? What is it that's driven you to this? Have you ever sat down and called out your regrets? Have you ever had the boldness to write them down and to stare at them on a sheet of paper and said, this is part of my story? Have you ever called your doubts out loud? Have you ever told them to somebody else? Have you ever told to somebody that you're so angry at them it's been 10 years and you still can't forgive them? You see, those are the moments when you begin to wrestle because they're called moments when God will come into your life and smack you off your center. You see, and this happens to Jacob until he begins to limp. You see, a wrestling match with God is not just one where you and him shake hands, walk away 10 seconds later, and hope your lives are both improved. It only leaves you with a limp. You see, Jacob had always gotten the upper hand. He'd won every match before. But finally, in his competency, he must face his own vulnerability. You see, one of the ways that we never want to wrestle, and we never have to wrestle, is to live in the boldness of our own competency. But what happens to Jacob is his competency is wounded. Beekner again. He had his knee under my hip. The rest of his weight was on top of my hip. Then the moment came, and he gave a fierce downward thrust. I felt a fierce pain. It was less a pain than the pain I saw. I saw it as light. I saw the pain as the dazzling bird shape of light. The pain's beak impaled me with light. It blinded me with the light of the wings. I knew I was crippled and done for. I could do nothing but cling now. I clung for dear life. I clung for dear death. You see, he touches him on the hip because for a wrestler, the hip is the place of power. It's the place where all your strength comes from. It's the place where you stand in the middle of the match that gives you the upper hand. And it is the exact place and the only place that Jacob can be touched 
where he will walk away a changed man. See, what is it for you? What is your hip? What is your hip? The thing in life that you stand upon, that no one's allowed to touch, that when you're wrestling, even with other people who are meaningful in your life, you straddle your legs in such a way that they may touch everything. They may grab your arms. They may grab your head, but they could never touch this hip because this hip is the entry point into my vulnerability. And I will always let my competency protect my vulnerability. See, that's where it comes cr- crashing down for Jacob. Is that his competency, his most proud part, his most shining part, his most protected part of his life was finally touched. What is that for you? What is the, the part that everyone admires that gives you your sense of comfort, that gives you your sense of strength, that gives you your sense in the community where people will still let you be a part of it because this is the thing that you stand on. Until that is touched, you cannot answer this question. Do you want to know God the right way? Because it, it must be touched and wounded. And make no mistake, this is a terrifying moment for Jacob. But once he is touched, it sends him falling into the loving arms of God. Because he falls into this man as a wounded wrestler and leans into him and thirdly makes this request. In verse 26, he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's a tenacious prayer. I wonder if you know that prayer. I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, for Jacob, he's saying this out loud because his whole life had been a chasing of blessing. He had gone after it in every relationship, in every aspect of his life. That's why he went after his brother, thinking, if I can get his possessions, then I will feel loved and important. Not enough. If I can convince my father that I'm truly the elder brother and he gives me the birthright, then I will feel loved. And meaningful. It's not enough. Goes into the, to Laban, says, I must have this woman, Rachel. If I have her, then it will be enough. He's tricked and it's Leah. Seven more years of working, they said the years seemed only like days because surely her affection, surely her love would finally make the blessing feel real to me. It's never enough. It's never been enough. And he's finally driven to this moment of a void living in his soul on this tenacious journey, searching for blessing. I wonder if you've tasted that void before. Peter Putnam, in his book, Song of the Father's Son, talks about all these problems of the modern man, our problems of lack of intimacy with other people, our problems of working to death, our problems of addictions to substances and other things, ways of avoiding life, he says, you could probably tether all that back down to one thing. If you really begin to spend time with a modern person, that's lack of parental blessing. He says this, many men's addictions to drug, drugs, work, sex, food, are all attempts by unblessed sons to fill their father hole. These are children who ached for someone to look at them and simply say, I love you. You're okay. The absence of those powerful affirmations fuel an unquenchable lust to be blessed by anything that sounds like it might utter those words. About 28 years ago, Spielberg uh, released his third Indiana Jones film, uh, The Last Crusade, 
And there's that climactic scene towards the end of the movie where they're in the room uh, searching for the Holy Grail with the knight. And there's a whole table full of cups. And they're looking for the cup of life. And they're looking for uh, the one that will bring them the blessing of life. And they go through each one of them and they say, it's, surely it's this beautiful one. Surely it's this beautiful one. Surely it's this gorgeous cup that will bring us life together. Surely it's this one with all the rubies and all the jewels and the pure gold that will give the blessing of life. And the knight looks at them and says, you must choose wisely lest you die. The man picks up the cup, puts water in it, drinks it, looks back, and immediately dies. And there's that comedic moment where the knight looks back at them and just says, he chose poorly. But then it's not enough. Because he says, if you take this cup beyond the seals, you too will die. Because of the promise and the outholding of life, they still must have the cup. So they take the cup beyond the seals and an earthquake happens. And so the woman fought, like, played by... Um, the German woman, Elsa, played, I think it's by Anne Donnelly. She falls into the gap, and the, the cup of life is sitting there on the ledge. She's got one hand holding up, and Harrison Fold's holding her and saying, Honey, I can't hold on to you. I'm, uh, you're slipping away. And she says, I can grab it. I can grab it. I can grab it. And she falls to her own death. And then in a moment where Spielberg is surely alluding to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, where no one can handle the power of the moment, Harrison Ford falls in the exact same situation with the cup sitting there, his hand reaching out, and his father holding him just as he had held the woman just before. And instead of turning and reaching right up to his own life, he says, I can grab it. I can grab it. I can have it right now. And it was worth the risk of their life, they thought. You see, here's what happens to Jacob in that moment where he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He realizes, I have gone through all these circumstances in my life, essentially risking my life with my brother, with my father, with my uncle, with all these people in order to get life, but it only brought me death. I thought, this cup will bless me. Nope, this cup surely will bless me. Nope, this cup will bless me. And I foolishly gave my life to everything, but it only brought me so-called death. Yet this man might be at the risk of my life, but I know that this man who I'm wrestling right now is the cup of life, and I will not let go of him, even if it costs me my life. Listen, if you want to make sense of your story and who you are, what cup are you chasing? What cup is out there that you are so sure is going to give you the peace, comfort, the life where you no longer have to deal with the fear and the conflict and the worry that so plagues your alone thoughts you never want to face and so turn that phone on for distraction? What is that cup? Because you're giving your life to it. It hopes that it will return and give you your life itself, but it will not give you that life. And what Jacob realizes in this moment as he says this man who might kill me is the cup of life beaten her again let me go for the day is breaking only then did I see it the first faint shudder of light behind the farthest hills I said I will not let you go I would not let him go for fear that the day would take him as the dark had given him it was my life I clung to, 
My enemy enemy was my life. My life was my enemy. I said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Even in his blessing meant death. I wanted it more than life. Bless me, I said. I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, do you want to know God? It will cost you your life. Are you willing to give your life in order to know this? Because the fascinating thing is he will give you his death in exchange for your life. What do you want? Do you want to know God? Do you want to be loved? Psalm 96 says his love outlasts mountains. Do you want to be, do you want to be known? All the way to the bottom, Psalm 139 says he has known you since you were in your mother's womb. There is no part of your soul. There is no part of your personality. There is no part of your body that he does not know. Do you want to be admired, loved, cared for? Zephaniah 3 says he dances over you and sings songs over your soul. Look, what do you crave for in this world? Because you were made to crave for and to know this to the point of gripping your life, saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And we're told in verse 30, there God blessed him. But not until fourthly, where Jacob must answer this question. It's a fascinating exchange. Because what happens is Jacob is there at the, at the climax of his moment, gripping this man, saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man who he's wrestling with does not respond yes or no. He does not say sure. He does not say you're not, not now. He just turns and asks him a question. What is your name? What is your name? It's such a profound question because in the ancient Near East, your name wasn't just a title on your driver's license or a way for people to identify you. It was your story. It was everything about you. It was your character. It was your secrets. It was the stuff in the closet that no one should know about you. It it defined who you are. You see, and for Jacob, his name meant heel grabber, literally. His brother, when he sold the birthright, said, surely you are named properly, for you are a deceiver. And so this question, what is your name? It must have crushed Jacob. A a pool of guilt must have just washed over him. It must have been terrifying to be asked, what is your story? And in the ancient Near East, you couldn't hide from your story because everybody knew your story on the outset. You see, there was no secret profiles. It was your name was an embarrassment. His name was shame. His name was liar. The prophet Jeremiah, when he talks so profoundly about the human heart, in chapter 2, he says, the heart above all things is deceitful. But literally in the Hebrew, what it says is the heart above all things is Jacob. See, what a story of shame, what a story of pain for 20 years that had followed him around. And when he's asked this question, what is your name? He had, to have feel like, he had to have felt like the blessing that he so tenaciously wanted and so desperately asked for was not going to be given to him because his name was not worthy of it, because his story was full of shame in it. What is your name had to have sent him 
into a moment of sadness because he thought, I'm too dead. I've gone too far. Have you ever felt like you've gone too far? That you've gone too far bitterly with somebody to ever think about reconciliation? You've gone too far with that, with that group of people to ever enter back in? You've gone too far in your life to not actually dive in and consider the questions of life. I haven't looked at that. I haven't addressed that in 15 years. It's too far. You see, when you say it's too far, it's because we're cloaked in fear. See, we're sure we have to be competent in the moment, competent to be able to answer this question. I need a competent answer. What is your name? What's the most competent thing I can rely on? But the only way to answer that question is limping into it. Uttering the truth, because what happens here is so, it's so beautiful. No one could have made this up. Because when he says his name, the man looks back at him and says, you shall no longer be called that. You shall no longer be called shame and embarrassment and deceit. You shall be called Israel. Now we're told here in the text that the name Israel literally means because you have prevailed over God. Now here's an interesting, interesting nugget. Sometimes in ancient Near Eastern rhetoric, uh, names and words are prescribed a meaning by the author, but historically and classically, the etym- etymology of the name has a different meaning, and that's the case here with the name Israel. You see here the word Israel. El is the Hebrew word for God. Isri, the verb for overcome. And what it means here is that God, El, is the object of the verb prevail. So it's prevailed over God. But classically and historically how this word was used is that El was the subject. So what the name actually read was that not will prevail over God, but God will prevail. And that's likely how Jacob would have heard it because it gives such a profound meaning. So what he's told here is that you will no longer be called by the thing that you're, you're afraid of. You will be called, God will prevail. Which is a fascinating name and almost a confusing name to be given in this moment because we're told just moments ago in this story that they were wrestling and God could not prevail over the moment, over, over the man. And so he's told this, you, you will be called, God will prevail through defeat. How in the world do we make sense of a name and find hope in that? Only at the foot of the cross. Where God himself would defeat all pain, would rename all stories, would bring in true blessing, not through a limp, but through his own death. In the Gospel of Matthew, what the author does is he introduces you to the person of Jesus by giving his birth narrative in the retelling of the story of Israel. That's why he begins with the genealogy of Abraham and of David. And he only goes through significant people in Israel. And then it talks about how they had to flee Egypt just just like Moses had to do because they were killing the firstborn sons. And then an angel appears and says, return from Egypt back to Israel just like the Israelites had to do. And just like the Israelites had to go through the parted waters of the, of the Red Sea, Jesus enters into the waters of baptism. And then, just like Israel, is taken out into the desert and tested not for 40 years, but for 40 days. But the unique thing about this man, Jesus, is unlike Israel, he passes all the tests because he is the true and final Israel who will bring 
the final blessing. The real cup of life, not through his limp, but through his own death on the cross. You see, when Jacob is wrestling with this man, begging for blessing, and he says, what is your name? He has said, you will no longer be called excommunication and death. You will be called gospel and promise. And friends, when you become a Christian and this becomes your story, that's your story. You see, the part of you that's so afraid of dealing and getting alone with truly who you are, it's because you think you have to be competent in your name. It's because you haven't been called the true name. Let him call you the true name. It's what it means to be in Christ. Do you remember how that scene ends for Indiana Jones? Harrison Ford is lying there with one arm up, hanging on the cliff. The cup is out there. And in the madness and the lure of the cup of life, he says, I can grab it. And his dad, played by Sean Connery, says, Junior, your hand is slipping. Give me your other hand. Give me your other hand. And he said, Dad, I can grab it. I can grab it. And it's kind of been a joke throughout the whole movie that Sean Connery would only call Harrison Ford Junior, Junior, Junior throughout the whole movie. But in this moment, he leans down to him and he whispers his true name. And he says, Indiana, let it go. And it is the true name that will always set you free. See, what is your name? You will only discover that by getting alone, by wrestling with the real regrets, the real questions in life, and making that tenacious Tenacious request. What do you really want out of life? And then letting him answer the question for you. You shall no longer be called the story of pain, but you shall be given the story of hope. Beatner concludes this way. The sun's rim was just starting to show over the top of the gorge. By the time I finally crossed the Jabbok, bands of gold fanned across the sky. I staggered through the rocky shallows, one hip dipping deep at each new step and my head bobbing. It is the way I've walked ever since. From that day to this, I have moved through the world like a cripple with a new name. The fear gave me that night by the river when he gave me his blessing and he crippled me. Do you want to know him? Find this story and make it yours. Let me pray for us. Lord, if we are honest, we would, we would prefer superficiality over reality. If it involves us having a limp and wrestling through the real things in life, we would prefer to just stay out. Yet because we long for life and we long for joy and we long for happiness, we crave this moment. Make it hopeful and not fearful for us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.